from the darkness between the stars comes your voice from the void. A place for conversations on the occult and the esoteric. Thank you for tuning in to this strange signal. I just wanted to make a note here. In this episode, there is some background noise that sounds like a lot of movement or clunking around. I believe that is Dr. Bell's cat that she mentions early in the episode running amok in her domicile. As a good familiar should. Um, Hopefully you don't find it too distracting. This was a great conversation and one worth listening to. Streaming to you from the shores of Lake Michigan, it is the voice from the void. Today I am joined by Dr. Deanne Bell, who is the head of the Norfolk Pagan Moot, formerly ran the Earth Religions Group for Bangor University, is a contributor for Sage Women and Pagan Dawn, and is part of the UK Pagan Federation. How are you doing tonight? Doing very good. Um, from the cloudy shores of Menai Bridge. Menai Bridge. How is the weather there this year? Dark and rainy. Um, that's how it is most of the time in uh, in winter in Menai Bridge. But uh, it does bring a beautiful spring with it. So uh, so we kind of wait for the longest night with uh, with bated breath, you could say. <laughs> yes, uh, it is similar here. Um, it's actually a clear and cold night with a wonderfully beautiful moon as I walked over to the studio to record this. This is our first episode for Voices from the Void. Uh, if you have tuned into the two previous trailers that I released, this will be slightly different. I asked Deanne to be on with me to discuss the winter solstice, which is when I hope to have this episode up. And I understand that you actually held a moot last night. Is that correct? That's right. Um, we did um, the last Pagan Moot for 2019. Um, and in that, we did discuss um, the rituals that are associated with the solstice. Um, and we made spirit balls um, kind of set the tone for the upcoming year. Um, we hold it every second Thursday um, because it makes it easy to keep on the calendar. Certainly, I can understand that. You know, unfortunately, you know, uh, as listeners will come to know, I am a practitioner. However, I am a lapsed practitioner. And part of the reason (laughs) that I'm doing this podcast is to kind of force myself to get back into this headspace and practice. And so I hope to include other practitioners, perhaps not as much a luminary in the religion as Dr. Bell, but other practitioners on to discuss how they came into the practice. So that is why I guess my first question for you, which I guess is probably actually my third question so far of the night. <laughs> what first uh, brought you into the, well, I guess it's twofold. Um, what first brought your attention to this worship and what drew you in and how would you describe your worship? Okay. Well, before I get into that, I'd like to say a little bit about um, about your comment on being a lapsed practitioner. And I think one of the things that a lot of pagans make a mistake about um, is they feel that they have to um, worship or do rituals all the time. And this is 
people who are newer to the uh, to the pagan relig religion feel like they have to do the same things that the Christian religion does sometimes and uh, attend church every Sunday. And actually, um, the old gods are a little bit more relaxed and groovy about that. Um, so we have in magic um, something called fallow time, which is when you're supposed to leave your magic behind, um, you reflect on the space, um, and you just try to, um, to let the next phase of magic come to you. And that fallow time um, comes typically um, when you are shifting from one type of practice to another. That's a great observation. Thank you for that. Um, so coming into magic, um, how did I come into magic? Um, please excuse the yelling cat in the background. He is a, a full moon lover. I'm pretty sure he's a werewolf. Um, coming into my practice, um, actually came through, um, through nightmares. Um, so in my early 20s, um, I started to have a series of, of increasingly kind of violent and disturbing nightmares and not caused by anything that I could really put my fingers on. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't reading Stephen King over all night long and then wondering why I was having bad dreams. Um, and I was looking for a way to take control of that. Um, and so the method that I decided that I would control that is through something called lucid dreaming, um, where you make yourself aware um, of dreams um, and then you try to stop them um, or change the focus of them. Um, and lucid dreaming is actually what um, what led me into looking into magic itself, um, because the first kind of magic I came into contact with was warding, which is setting up a positive energy um, around yourself or around your space um, or protective energy um, to keep um, other kind of negative energies out. Um, and through a combination of lucid dreaming and warding, um, I was able to take um, control of my space and my actions um, and to reflect better on, um, on things that might be contributing to those nightmares. Um, and that was really my first step into magic. Interesting. And now with the lucid dreaming, and when you were taking you practice dream journaling, or was it completely a a more psychic experience without any tactile um, elements? Well, it was a little bit of both. Um, so lucid dreaming, you set up symbols usually in your dreams that will let you know that you're dreaming. Um, and unfortunately, I wasn't very good at that spot at that. Um, aspect of it. What I had to do was wait until I knew I was in a nightmare. Um, and then I tried to say, I'm in a nightmare. And that vocalization of that was helped help me stop the dream um, and help me to kind of shift it into new spaces. Um, so I would record what I was dreaming about and then look it up in a dream journal to see if those symbols meant anything to my waking life. Um, and they were, they coordinated um, an amazing amount of time. Um, and you can read that in one of two ways. You can think about it like horoscopes in that you can apply um, most general interpretations to any part of your life. Um, or you can look at it um, as your subconscious actually trying to, to communicate with you. And I think one of the strangest incidences of that was um, that I dreamt one night that I was hiding money under floorboards. It was the weirdest dream um, I've had in I think in my whole life, and I was actually unhooking these honeycomb parts of the floor and hiding coins. Um, and when I woke up to um, to look at the dream, I mean, it seems it's pretty seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Um, you're kind yeah. of storing wealth, but it was actually um, 
uh, means protecting assets, um, honeycomb meaning natural asset, assets. Um, and I was actually suffering some health problems at the time that I was really worried about. And I was trying to think about how I was going to maintain my own physical health. Um, so the kind of literal interpretation of dreams and what you're actually talking to yourself about is quite different um, when you start to get into the symbols that are in them. And um, you'd be amazed that when you start to dream or to look at symbols um, in, in any detail, um, that you begin to communicate with yourself in those symbols. So some things that I probably would have never dreamed before, but came across as symbols in the dream journal, then started to, or the dream um, dictionaries, um, then started to appear in my dreams. Sure, that makes sense. Now, did you start connecting these dream symbols with outside portents or revel revelations? Did that symbology match up? Did it bleed out? Um, a lot of the times, yes. Um, and and that's how that's where it starts to really kind of shift into magic um, because um, symbology is a really important part of of spell work. Um, you know, you you light candles and bring in earth and call air, um, depending on which kind of practice you're doing. Um, each of these kind of smaller items representing a larger part of your life. Um, so it made the transition um, from just kind of waiting for my subconscious to talk to me um to actually talking to my subconscious myself to change aspects of my life a lot easier um because i had already those connections with symbols yes that makes sense um now when you were beginning to get into the actual practice of magic beyond just this initiation as it were the self-initiation how did you choose what pathway you follow there weren't um because i um i was beginning this path in a, in a time when um the internet really hadn't caught on yet if that makes any sense um there well, wasn't sense to me but <laughs> there wasn't a lot of, uh, of information available particularly um in this kind of um in this kind of practice and actually it was one of those things that um, that it was very hard to kind of track down. If you didn't know somebody who was already practicing, um, then it was very hard to get a hold of the information. So most of the information that I came into contact when I first started practicing with uh, or practicing um, was Wiccan, um, and it still has a very large um, influence on the practice that I have now, which is um, a lot more non-denominational, which is a lot more uh, hedge witch esque. Um, than it was when I started. Um, so I think the first um, first book um, I came in contact with was Power Spellcraft for Life. Um, and it set me up um, for a good way into kind of assessing paths and magic. So rather than being taught um, the strict garden, garden, gardenarian, yes, that's the word I want, gardenarian ways, um, uh, the Power Spellcraft for Life um, asked me to assess the um, the paths um, and determine whether they were right for me, determine what each aspect of a spell meant. Um, and it actually was a book that was teaching spellcraft in itself. So I was very lucky in that I came into contact with, um, with a book that was asking questions rather than trying to prescribe a specific path. And my second lucky break was that um, I had a friend of a friend who was already practicing magic. Um, and she came and helped me do kind of the more rudimentary things. Um, and I remember one of the things that I really struggled with um, when trying to learn to ward 
um, was a physical ward um, on myself. Um, and I struggled for ages um, with trying to do the visualization um, for that. Um, and finally, um, what she said to me was, you know, on Star Trek, shields up. Um, and that was the perfect kind of metaphor for it. Um, and it helped me kind of really lock down that power. So one of the challenges of recording a transatlantic podcast is sometimes the audio gets a little garbled. You mentioned a book earlier, and I couldn't quite make out what it was. What was that book? Power Spellcraft for Life. Got you. Thank you very much. So, yes, I think it is very interesting. Uh, A, the, the, the way that you combined pop culture and magic uh, you know, and I, I think that for people of our generation, that's not that unusual because speaking for perhaps dangerously so for both of us, um, <laughs> I, I think we were coming into it around the time of the emergence of chaos magic as a, a major thing in pop culture. Um, I don't know, actually, because... Because my experience with chaos magic is quite limited, even even though I've run um, several um, several groups and I have several people who've said um, that they practice um, practice chaos magic. I actually haven't ever seen it in practice, if if you know what I mean. So um, where other whether branches of magic come in and demonstrate um, what they're doing, um, people who um, practice chaos magic so far um, have only been able to talk about things that have happened when they did spells um, rather than to come in and demonstrate how they start the chaos in the first place. So my experience in that is actually very limited. Um, but um, we did come in um, with Buffy the Vampire Slayer and with um, Charms and with, yeah, yeah, with all of those kinds of um, new, well, they were new to us anyway, um, yeah. ways into um, spirituality that weren't um, offered to me growing up in Kentucky, um, and that's probably something I should tell your your gentle listeners. Um, I am calling you or talking to you from North Wales, and I am very obviously not um, Welsh. So um, just make sure that when you're when you're kind of contextualizing that, you're contextualizing that in a in a North Kentucky girl moved to Wales kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a um, Connecticut. Well, not even a Connecticut, a Kentucky yeah. Yankee in North Wales court, as it were. Yeah, and, and that's because actually the, the practice of, of Druidism and the practice of, of um, pagan magic is very, very strong in the Welsh culture, very, very strong in the Irish culture. Um, and I don't want to be speaking for a culture that, um, that I have experienced, but that I don't have a right to speak on the behalf of. So, Understood. You know, and I, I think that even in our hillbilly way, for lack of a better term, <laughs> that, that there is a certain cultural magics that are built into the folkways of our region. Um, the, the, the term that readily comes to mind is hoodoo. Yes. Know? And so I can remember my, you know, grandmother having certain things that she would do that were... You know, if we were to classify them from a completely secular point of view, or even from a Christian point of view, we would just call them superstitions. Um, 
but I think that there's more power in that. And I think that the, the fluidity of spirituality and religion, this is something that survives so many different things and people internalize and do things that they don't even really think of as practicing, but really are. Yeah. I mean, superstition, uh, I'm doing a, um, a story hour tomorrow on Christmas traditions, superstitions, um, and ghost stories, and talking about the kind of overlaying of um, Saturnalia um, and the festival of um, the Persian goddess Mirtha over the top of Christmas um, Christ Mass, um, and how we've kind of picked up the symbols from those two celebrations to incorporate in Christmas. Um, and sometimes we actually, uh, in the process of that, we've kind of separated the symbol from the story. Um, and I think um, if you go back and look at a lot of the things that we call superstitions, for instance, knocking on wood, um, they all reach back to a more a, a pagan tradition. So um, we knock on wood um, to prevent bad luck if we've said something that we don't want to, don't want to be overheard. But that knocking is actually um, a druid practice to call on the gods of that wood for protection. So um, superstition very much um, a part of um, enacting um, ritual, um, sometimes unintentionally. Yeah, totally. And, and uh, the same thing with the pinch of salt over the shoulder or what yeah. have you. Um, pinch of salt in the devil's eye. Exactly. <laughs> So, okay, you, you kind of pushed back on the characterization of chaos magic. What would you call your practice? Um, my practice, um, I would um, comfortably call it hedge witchery. Um, mm -hmm. It is a um, it's a practice where I don't specifically call on any gods or goddesses um, that I work with um, what I consider earth energy. Um, and um, another people might call that a god or a goddess. And, that doesn't bother me, <laughs> but, sure. uh, but um, I, it's something that uh, that I do, um, and I am very very happy to actually pick and choose from other religious paths things that suit my path. Um, so I would I don't follow a straight um, Wiccan path, for instance, or Druid path, but I have borrowed elements of both um, to kind of create my own way. Um, and I think that that's what I really love about the pagan religion is that it's not prescriptive, um, that I'm allowed to choose. Um, so it doesn't have a name per se, um, but I would call it um, hedgewitchery because um, I like the idea of witches walking down a hedge and plucking from that hedge the things they need to heal themselves and heal, uh, heal other people. And, and that's how I want to treat my own craft. Of course, that makes perfect sense. Uh, and that is actually one of the reasons that I termed it a chaos magic, because that is one of the, you know, and I don't consider myself a scholar of chaos magic, but that's one of the tenets, as I understand it, um, is that you pick and choose from various traditions and use what best suits you. And I guess the, the big difference here is, even though you're working primarily with earth energy, I suppose a... And if there are any out there that want to come on and tell me that I'm wrong, you're more than welcome to. But <laughs> the chaos magicians would consider this all like a Jungian archetype, that it is the self that is doing it, that you are actually connecting 
with yourself and not an outside spiritual or otherworldly power? Um, there, there, you could say that. I mean, I think that there's a very strong, um, strong suggestion for that in any kind of spell work. Um, but I know that um, in some of the work that I've done, that the the power of change that was created in that spell work um, was more than I would have been able to do myself um, in any kind of practical sense. There was a sense um, in some situations, the serendipity, the way that things fall together all of a sudden, um, has a way of making you believe absolutely that you're in some control over it, but that ultimately there is kind of a stronger um, energy or spirit around you. So I'm, I do believe that I direct my path, but I don't believe that I'm the only power on my path, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. So how does it feel to live in a place where, I mean, just judging from the manner of things that you're involved with and honorifics that I said at the beginning of the, of the podcast, how does it feel to live in a place that is so different from Kentucky where we grew up that is accepting of these things? Um, it's it's very different, um, and it's it's quite liberating actually to be able to to come in contact with people who um, don't exactly believe the same thing that you do, but who can discuss what you believe um, openly and without any prejudice. And it's not to say that there isn't any prejudice here, because um, I think that exists everywhere in the world. But I think that the um, that the uh, the basis um, of the culture um, around me, particularly in North Wales, um, is a culture that, that values individuality, that values poetry, um, that values um, creativity. Um, and they are, um, they're very, very understanding um, of pagan paths. Um, and there are, um, there are stores, um, I don't where we came from, um, trying to get a hold of anything that had anything to do with um, Taken paths it used to take a uh, used to take an act of God, so to speak, or God. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, or you'd have to actually travel two hours away to get something. Whereas, um, whereas now um, that I'm a little bit more educated and that I know that I could probably get as much out of my backyard as I could get out of any store, um, but also um, that I can go to um, a, a local group. Um, of people who practice less time than me and more time than me. Um, and if I have a problem I can't unpick, I can discuss it. Um, and it's made a world of difference um, for how I treat magic, for how I accept other people's um, positions in magic, because I think that that's one of the dangers in any kind of religion, religious group, and particularly as a self-practitioner, that you start to get almost prescriptive with yourself um, and nobody challenges your ideas because you're in kind of an echo chamber. Um, and when you get into a wider um, social pagan group, um, people ask you, why do you do that? Do you think it's important? Um, and it's it's absolutely vital to growth um, as a practitioner um, that you have that questioning. Yeah, I, and to your point about where we grew up, that I can remember uh, there was one store that was essentially a footwear store, but also some crystals and things and, and very ground minor. Floor. Ground yes. floor shoes, yep. <laughs> that was it. But I mean, it was uh, the place to go for pagans on the go in our little area. <laughs> and it had three drawers worth of pagan stuff. But uh, right. but you know what? Um, to this day, I respect all three drawers. So <laughs> Yeah, totally. I mean, they were at least 
willing to countenance the, the conversation and, and talk to people about things, talk about the energies, and uh, were, especially for the area, incredibly accepting. Agreed. Agreed. Um, I want to touch back on something that you that you had referred to in you know questioning your path and why you're working and challenging your own self beliefs from working with people of other traditions. And you and again we're going back to the mood that you had just last night. How does that necessarily work when you have so many people? I'm assuming and I don't know, so please inform me if I'm wrong. That are are walking different pathways. That how does that how do you guys find a common language to accomplish things? Well, I think that uh, the first thing we do um, is um, that we establish um, that we're a space to discuss, um, but not to um, not to discourage other people's practice. Um, so the first thing we do is kind of, um, and I say challenge, it's asking why, but not asking why with the intention of undermining somebody else's belief. So um, we create a very supportive environment, um, and if you want to come into the group um, and, and, sit and tell about an experience or about ideas that you have that I disagree with, I'm free to voice that disagreement. Um, but only if I feel like I can contribute something to what you're trying to do. Um, if I just disagree because it's not how I practice, then um, in the group, um, you keep that opinion to yourself. Um, and because we're not, um, because there's no drive um, in the pagan group to save souls, so to speak, right. um, or to save one another, or to actually to convert one another, a lot of that infighting that happens in some other religious groups doesn't happen here. Um, because um, I don't get any points if anybody converts to my path of paganism, you know. Um, there's nothing I get out of that except for maybe somebody else to uh, to practice with on a Sabbath. Um, but uh, but that that wants to share knowledge, I think, is pretty um, pretty standard um, in pagans because I don't think anybody picks this path. Nobody lazy picks this path. It's a it's a hard work. It's a lot of self questioning. It's a lot of experimentation it's a lot of failure um and if you're not willing to do those things to find the best path for you then um then paganism sometimes is not the right space so we already have people who are who are willing to be flexible in those areas um and that means that we can discuss what we're doing so the the bulk of my group now um are heathens or north pagans um and that's the branch again that i know some about um but i don't know a lot about so they've been coming in um with their rituals and with the way that they worship and talking about what it means to do um, to, to make certain sacrifices or to make um, make time for their gods. Um, and I think that that's been fascinating. Um, and it is something to really to kind of think about. And I'm fascinated in two senses, in the first sense that I've never that I've never seen it practiced. And the second sense in the way that it's married to the stories, the cultural stories that it comes from. Um, and I think that that's, that curiosity um, is is vital actually to to, to growth. So um, that's how we kind of keep it calm. Um, and we're also in a little nook. So if somebody gets um, too heated up, they get banned from the nook for ten minutes, and then they can come back in. Oh, very good. <laughs> but uh, to date, we have never had to ban anybody. So I do think you're right. So I do think the without the 
drive to convert that it allows you to release other people's um, it, you know, and I think the another point that you touched on, which is very important that I want to tease out a little bit, is that this is not an easy path, that it is something that you have to work at and that there is a lot of failure because I, I feel, and even amongst some of the people that we knew when we were younger in our local community, that the title of pagan or whatever they wanted to call themselves, you know, uh, identifier X, because I know people who call themselves druids and people who call themselves shamans and, and mm -hmm. it ran the gamut. And I'm not going to say that they weren't honestly walking that path, but I think a lot of it was to identify themselves as something different from the mainstream that it became a part of their identity and not necessarily a part of their practice. And I don't think that there is anything wrong with your religion, whatever it is being part of your identity. But I think that they were just doing it to mark themselves as other as opposed to actually seeking any kind of enlightenment or pathway with it. Yeah, and, and I think that that's, uh, that's something that happens um, because, uh, because we feel a need to seek others like us, even when we want to stand out different. Um, and sometimes the only way you can... You can find the people who are like you is to say I'm not like them, yeah. and uh, and I think um, that there is there is sometimes some experimentation. People come into the group um, or come into paganism believing um, that it is um, that it is a way to stand out, um, and uh, and it can be, I guess. Um, but I think that those people very soon um, realize that. The, that there's a lot of, of work and self-reflection and that self-reflection about why they want to stand out can sometimes convert them either fully to the pagan path or to actually make them kind of step back and think about other ways that they can make themselves different. Um, so um, I think that maybe paganism for people who are trying to be other is not the wrong path, um, no, but no, it's no. not the easy way to go. <laughs> <laughs> Have any? I know that here on stateside, especially you know, you used the term heathen earlier, but you know, people who follow the more Nordic religions here are sometimes are having to push back against white supremacist groups for the appropriation of symbols and terminology. Do you see that so much in the UK? Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's not as much because uh, because well, I don't see it um, as much because I'm in. Um, I'm in an area where that isn't a very prominent. Um, but I think the appropriation of symbols is something that's um, that is a part of culture, um, and there's not a way really to find it. Um, I think that the the Norse path has a lot of things that um, they have a lot of of elements that have to be reconciled with a modern um, world um, that are difficult really to think about. Um, in terms of gender, in terms of equality, in terms of, of a lot of things. Um, and the way that I've seen, um, seen them work it in, in my groups um, is, to, um, is to really quite, uh, is to think about what those terms um, mean to them um, and to think about what that gender balance means um, and to kind of take it um, from a gender power imbalance to um, to actually um, empowering um, all parties. Um, so I don't think that there's um, a lot of room in the wider um, UK um, Norse 
Kagan's um, for um, intolerance in any um, way, shape, or form. Um, so the the thought of it being kind of a white supremacist space um, is ludicrous to me because the Norse Kagan's I know um, would not be able to kind of fall into that category, if you know what I mean. I do. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, I'm not... I'm not sure that there's any way for any one religion to keep hold of a religious symbol. Um, and I guess if it really, if those symbols um, are important to them, um, they can find ways to reclaim it. Um, and if it's not something that's vital to them, it might be something to give up. Um, but I think it's a personal choice um, ultimately. Um, and I believe that, uh, that the Norse pagans will find a way um, to make what they do um, inclusive um and fitting um for their for their growth their spiritual growth so um at least the guys uh the guys that i'm working with now are trying very hard um to make it that way well I certainly wish them the best as i do the ones stateside i, I know of several well i won't say several but i know of groups that are regionally close to that are dealing with these issues as well so the reason or one of the reasons that I wanted to get this recorded tonight was the upcoming solstice. So would you mind sharing with us, Deanne, what the solstice means to you in your practice? Um, the solstice, um, more widely, is the longest night of the year. Um, in my part of the UK, it's particularly uh, long. Um, today it started to get dark at 4 o'clock. Um, so uh, the long night is almost an endless night by the time the solstice comes. Um, and in my own practice, um, I use that time um, for celebration first. Um, so mulled wine definitely in my calendar. Um, but um, I find it is a wonderful night um, for divination. Um, and I do several kind of divination practices um, for predicting um paths for the new year, giving me kind of ways to develop myself, um, things to look out for. Um, and um, I do a wheel of the year um, terror spread. Um, and I also do, um, because it is a, a night of fire, um, I do fire scrying. Um, and what it really means to me um, is um, in the time leading up to Yule, um, is that quiet fallow time for me is a time when I'm not heavily practicing when I'm not um, when I'm trying to take as much joy um, out of the darkness as I can um, and the 21st is kind of like the eruption of that joy um, and preparation for the work that will come in the spring um, and uh, looking forward really to um, to planting um, my gardens um, and my vegetables um, but not trying to rush that process. And I think we kind of get into um, sometimes uh, a cycle of always planning the next step. Um, and on the longest night, I try to, to live in the moment um, and, and make it um, a long night, make it a special night, um, and to use that time for some pretty deep reflection. When you are doing your divinations and you're setting things up, I know you said that you try to enjoy the night and really go into it 
without too many expectations, but do you prepare questions ahead of time or do you just wait till the time of the scrying to, to see what questions come to mind then? Um, if I have a question before I go in, um, I ask it, but I usually come um, with the expectation of, of gaining knowledge um, of the future year. So um, particularly pertaining to me, um, that keeps me from getting answers that are non sequitur. Um, yes. I don't really want to know what uh, what other people are doing for the rest of the year. A little bit selfish in my magic that way. Um, but um, for instance, um, when my sister was um, was having her second child, I was worried that she was um, that the complications surrounding that birth would um, would result in death. Um, and so I came to my circle. Um, with that question, um, and my spring revealed that it was going to be a, um, a difficult birth, but that both the mother and the baby would be fine, um, and that is what happened, um, and that was a fire scrying session, so um, one flame became um, um, split at the top, and then highlighted in bright yellow, and then slowly those two flames moved apart until the candle was actually two different burning flames. Um, and that's how I knew that it was um, was related to the question that I had asked. So um, it depends really on if I'm worried about anything or if I'm working on something specifically, um, I'm trying to develop um, any certain skill or um, or if I'm worried about the job, um, whether I come in with a question or whether I just come in um, and let the world talk to me. And I think that it's actually more useful if I don't come in labored or weighed down with too many questions. Certainly. No sense putting a lot of static into the signal waves. <laughs> and also a good way to get weird answers. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, we have both gotten weird answers when doing such things. <laughs> that is so true. So I don't really have too many more questions for you. I do thank you for joining us this far and having this enlightening conversation. Um, if you would like to, though, that you, you could tell me more about the work that you do with Sage Woman or Pagan Dawn. Um, what I do for Sage Woman and Pagan Dawn, um, I'm just a contributor. So um, if I have a particular bit of magic practice, um, or um, experience that I feel might benefit the wider pagan community, um, I share that practice. And what's really great about Pagan Dawn um, and Sage Woman um, as pagan magazines um, is that they are open um, to contributors, um, that they, um, that Sage Woman specifically, um, and Niven, who edits that magazine, um, she pays in contributor copies, which is very, very valuable in terms of knowledge um, and that they're very open to um, to new ideas, so new ways of practice, trying to blend these very old paths um, with a more contemporary view. Um, and it can be difficult sometimes, um, but, um, but they both value stories of how you're making that blend um, and they value stories that are both um, stories of success um, and stories of sometimes failure. Pagan Dawn is more um, kind of connected with um, um, researching um, researching certain paths. Um, they're a little bit more um, academic driven, um, I think. Um, but but both of them very very good magazines to have a look at. Um, and also, um, if you are practicing and if you want to share that practice, to think about contributing to. 
That sounds very good. It, it reminds me of, and I'm sure there are other things, but the one that I am most knowledgeable of is Anathema Publishing out of Canada, which often has calls for contributors for their quarterly journal called Pillars. I haven't seen that one yet, but it will be something that I'll have a look into. <laughs> well, next time I see one, I will pass it away so we can have that information. Sounds fantastic. Well, again, wow. I want to thank you very much for joining me this evening. It's always lovely to talk to you. Lovely with... to talk to you. Thank you for including me. Oh, I plan on doing so again. I will be annoying in that way. <laughs> and as they say on Twitter, all opinions are my own. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. Um, speaking of, if you have any contact information or anything that you would like to give out or links to the organizations that you work with, please pass those along and I will make sure that they are in the show notes. Absolutely. And may you have a blessed solstice. May you have a blessed Yule. Before I leave you this evening, I want to read to you a short prayer. Beneath the tree of light and life, a blessing at this season of Yule. To all that sit at my hearth, today we are brothers, we are family, and I drink to your health. Today we do not fight, we bear no one ill will. Today is a day to offer hospitality to all that cross my threshold in the name of this season. Happy Yule to you, listeners, from your voice from the void.